Welcome to Life, Love and Light. I'm Veronica Mary Rolfe, and in this fourth season of podcasts, we're examining the topic of resurrection, Christ's resurrection, and our own. We will also be considering how we might live resurrected lives right now, even in the midst of our suffering, fears, global crises, and personal struggles. This series of podcasts is drawn from my recent award-winning book, Living Resurrected Lives, What It Means and Why It Matters, which is co-authored by my daughter, Eva Natanya. Last week, we went in depth to examine the stories of Christ's resurrection appearances, to Mary Magdalene and the other Mary in the Gospel of Matthew, to Magdalene alone in the Gospel of John, and to the two disciples, possibly husband and wife, on the road to Emmaus in the Gospel of Luke. We realized that the weeping and disconsolate Magdalene did not recognize Jesus in the garden until he called her name, and that the two disciples only recognized that the stranger on the road was Jesus when they showed him hospitality in the breaking of the bread. And we reflected on how important it is for us to recognize Jesus when he calls our own name in deep prayer or through the loving voice of someone else. And when we hear him speak to us through scripture and receive him, in Eucharistic fellowship. We considered that we must grow more and more consciously aware that Jesus walks along the road of our lives with us and within us with every step we take. We also examined the two different stories in Luke and John of the appearance of Jesus to the disciples and their companions in the upper room. And finally, we entered into the story of the doubting disciple, Thomas. In reflecting on this scene, we asked, did Thomas believe that Jesus was truly God and therefore could rise from the dead because he saw him? Or was he empowered to see who Jesus actually was because he came to believe in him. This week, I want to consider the epilogue to the Gospel of John. It begins with the announcement that, quote, after these things, presumably the episode with Thomas, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples by Lake Tiberias. There were seven disciples, Simon Peter, Thomas the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, and two others who are unnamed. And these disciples had been fishing all night long, but caught nothing. Quote, Just after daybreak, Jesus stood on the beach, but the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. As at the tomb, John set the scene at sunrise 
to suggest the dawning of light out of darkness and despair. This has been a familiar theme in John ever since the prologue when the evangelist characterized the word of God as the light that shines in the darkness. Once again, as with Mary Magdalene, Jesus appeared out of nowhere, but was not immediately recognized. He called to the men using a familial greeting, quote, Children, you have no fish, have you? They answered him, No. And then Jesus told them to cast their net on the right side of the boat, and they would find some fish. They did, as Jesus said, and immediately, quote, they were not able to haul it in because there were so many fish. This extraordinary catch signaled to the disciple whom Jesus loved that, quote, it is the Lord. He was the only one of the seven to recognize Jesus. But when Peter heard this, he immediately tucked his outer garment around himself so that he would not appear naked before the Lord, and with his usual impetuosity, he jumped into the water to be the first to get to Jesus. The exceptional count of large fish was 153, yet the net was not torn. Quote, Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. Jesus invited the exhausted fishermen to breakfast on the beach. They all knew by now who he was. They were close enough to recognize him. But they dared not ask him where he had come from or how he had arrived there on the beach, or where he had gotten the fish and bread at such an early hour. Just as at the multiplication of the five barley loaves and two fish in John 6, which also took place at Lake Tiberias, Jesus came and took and gave the bread to the disciples, and he did the same with the fish. John finished this seaside segment by saying, quote, This was now the third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Indeed, it was the third appearance to the male disciples, but actually the fourth appearance mentioned in John's Gospel. The first was to Mary Magdalene. After breakfast, Jesus and Simon Peter went for a walk along the pebbly beach by the lake. Presumably they were alone and out of hearing of the others. And Jesus asked Simon Peter, quote, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, 
You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter felt hurt because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Three times Peter had denied even knowing Jesus. Now Jesus was giving his disciple a once-in-a-lifetime chance to tell the Lord how much he loved him three times over. Peter must declare that he loves Jesus more than he loves any of his brethren, or, alternatively, more than his brethren love Jesus. John's depiction of the scene is full of poignancy. Peter is at first hurt to be asked over and over again what the Lord knows so well, that is, that Peter loves him. But for Peter's own sake, it is necessary that he repent each of his three denials of Jesus and experience that he is completely forgiven in his threefold affirmation. Such repentance and forgiveness produces an eruption of joy, the joy of the lost soul returning home to its father, being invited to a banquet with singing and dancing. After each affirmation of his love, Peter is given a heartfelt commission by Jesus. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. In John's Gospel, Jesus had described himself as the Good Shepherd. Quote, I am the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And now Jesus is entrusting that role of shepherding to Peter. The disciple must attend to the physical care and spiritual nourishment of all the disciples and continue Christ's own work of salvation. Peter will also need to love and forgive others just as Jesus had forgiven him. There would be no limit to this life of service. As a young man, Peter could buckle up his tunic and go wherever he wished. But Jesus tells him that when he grows old, quote, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. Just as Jesus had stretched out his hands and been bound by the guards in the Garden of Gethsemane, so one day Peter, too, would be bound and led off to die like his master. Peter's thrice-stated commitment to love would eventually demand everything of him. His wife, his children, his extended family, his fellow disciples. Finally, as Jesus had laid down his life for his sheep, so Peter would have to do so. 
he could not hold anything back. Now he must commit himself unconditionally to the work of the Lord. Jesus made this pointedly clear in just two words. Quote, follow me. At that moment, Peter realized that, quote, the disciple whom Jesus loved was close behind them. He too was following Jesus. When had he arrived? How much had he overheard? This was the beloved disciple who would recline next to Jesus at the Last Supper and had been courageous enough to ask Jesus who would betray him. Was Peter perhaps a bit jealous of the beloved disciple who had never betrayed or deserted Jesus? Who had stood at the foot of the cross with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Mary Magdalene? Peter asked Jesus, Lord, what about him? In other words, would the beloved disciple also be bound and led away and suffer a violent death? Quote, Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? The Lord would not countenance Peter comparing himself to anyone else, nor would he answer such a question. Jesus merely reiterated the commission to Peter. Follow me. That is all Peter needed to know, both now and in the future. These narratives concerned real, imperfect, historical people with recognizable names, characteristics, fears, flaws, hopes, doubts, and faith. They were artistically crafted reenactments of basic storylines that had been told and retold within the church community for decades before they were finally written down. They were recorded to bring the reader to believe what the disciples knew to be true, that the individual the first witnesses saw was indeed Jesus, alive in a transformed body. On the foundation of these sacred writings, we base our own faith, not only in Christ's bodily resurrection from the dead, but in our own. As St. Paul wrote to the Romans, quote, Therefore, we have been buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And now, just as we discussed multiple theories disputing the empty tomb, I think we must examine repeated attempts at alternative interpretations of the resurrection appearances that have challenged faith in Christ's own bodily resurrection. Now most Christians probably do believe that Jesus really died, 
that his tomb was empty and that he came back to life. But how many Christians have really considered in what way he came back to life? Some scholars consider that he returned in exactly the same body that he had before he was crucified. So in that case, his rising would have been similar to that of Lazarus, whom Jesus raised from the dead after four days in the tomb, or to the raising of the son of the widow from Nain, or to the return from the sleep of death that had occurred for the daughter of Jairus. Now this theory maintains that Jesus was not actually resurrected, but merely resuscitated. Such an explanation would imply that Jesus, like those he restored to life during his earthly ministry, would have to die again. He would not have conquered death forever. Other theories propose that, yes, Jesus died and was duly buried and returned to life, but not in a bodily resurrection. Rather, only his soul or his spirit was raised from the dead. His decaying corpse remained inside the tomb. Jesus is alive, but as a pure spirit. Therefore, his spiritual resurrection and return to his Father in heaven and his appearances to the disciples were only visions or ghostly apparitions, not physical realities. Another theory suggests that the tomb was empty, a physical body was raised, but this glorified body had no continuity with the physical body in which Jesus had lived and died. In essence, it was not the same Jesus. And then there are the confirmed disbelievers, who admit Jesus died, but deny the empty tomb, the resurrection, and the appearances altogether. They dismiss these stories as pious legends or pre-scientific myths. To them, the disciples merely felt the interior presence of the man Jesus, whom they remembered as being still with them after his death. And this feeling emboldened them to become courageous enough to preach and die for the gospel. Such radical revisionists go so far as to claim that even the disciples did not really believe that Jesus had conquered the finality of death once and for all, and that the evangelists and Paul did not really mean that Jesus rose from the dead and was glorified. And the first Christians were not really convinced that Jesus Christ had risen. These skeptics refused to grant to the New Testament language the right to mean what it actually says. Instead, they presumed to construct new meanings according to what more rational postmodern minds can tolerate. 
They insist that they know better than the evangelists and Paul what really happened at the resurrection and what was really meant by, quote, Jesus is risen. On the other hand, there are scholars and theologians who do not focus on what happened to Jesus at all, but rather on what happened to the disciples. Theologian Gordon Kaufman affirms that, quote, it was really what Jesus' resurrection signified for the disciples that was the crucial element of that event. He considers that the resurrection event was all about the divine breaking into history through Jesus of Nazareth. Kaufman insists that the most important element for the early Christians was not belief that the Messiah rose from the dead, but rather, quote, the theologically important element in their newfound faith was their consciousness of the continuing activity of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in their historical existence, not the resuscitation of their former friend and leader. Well, according to this theory, resurrection was all about the divine activity of God the Father breaking into the history of human beings. It was not about what happened to the Son. Unfortunately for reductionist theologians, the real meaning of the resurrection is not that Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to his disciples. Their theories focus so heavily on what happened to Jesus' disciples and what might happen to those who believe that they fail to consider what happened to Jesus. Taking another view, Rudolf Bultmann claims that, quote, faith in the resurrection is nothing other than faith in the cross as the salvation event, as the cross of Christ. And then he asks, quote, how do we come to believe in the cross as the salvation occurrence? Here there seems to be only one answer, because it is proclaimed as such, because it is proclaimed together with the resurrection. He further declares that Easter does not affirm an actual bodily resurrection at all. Rather, quote, faith in the word of proclamation is the genuine faith of Easter. In other words, according to Bultmann, Jesus does not actually live in a glorified body, but only in the salvific proclamations, that is, the preaching of the church. According to his theory, the triumph of the cross or the hidden work of Jesus in human hearts is itself sufficient to explain the development and dissemination of Christianity throughout the world. But inevitably the question arises, without a bodily resurrection, where is the triumph of the cross? 
Where is Christ's actual victory over the all-too-palpable power of evil, death, and bodily decay? And without a bodily resurrection, what is there to preach? Notice how in these various theories, either the ancient faith in Christ's bodily resurrection becomes thoroughly spiritualized into an otherworldly arising to heaven, or the something that happened to Jesus gets minimized into something that happened to his disciples. A new self-awareness, a fresh feeling of hope, a spiritual sense of Christ's presence, or even a divine intervention of some sort. As a result, the various appearances to the female and male disciples are sometimes considered to be illusory Christophanies emanating from heaven, similar to the Old Testament stories of divine and angelic visitations. Either that, or they are dismissed as purely imaginative creations by the evangelists intended to support the faith of early Christian communities. But this is not how the story of the resurrection of Jesus Christ was first told. Those who put the spotlight on the relevance of what happened to the disciples, no matter how transformative, or suggest an out-of-body arising followed by later ghostly visions, completely miss the point. If Christ had not risen bodily from the dead, there would have been no divine breakthrough to discuss, and certainly no life-altering experience for the disciples. While perhaps expressing a form of sincere devotion, such widely variant viewpoints do not do justice to what the four Gospels and the letters of Paul and the Acts of the Apostles tell us actually occurred. Unless Jesus had truly risen from the dead in the tomb and appeared in a recognizable, albeit gloriously transformed and immortal, human body, there would have been no sense of Christ rising in the hearts of his disciples. No hint of the, quote, saving efficacy of the cross. No church to proclaim that, quote, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. No experience of Christ as the source of new life without end. And certainly no possibility of a radical transformation in the minds and hearts of the disciples. On the contrary, these men and women would have remained scandalized, heartbroken, and deeply disillusioned human beings, hiding in a locked room in fear of being arrested as followers of a disgraced and crucified rabbi. Christianity would have been dead 
before it had begun, buried forever in the tomb with Jesus. Reductionist theories overlook or undervalue the cataclysmic event that had to have actually happened in order to reveal such a breaking in of God the Father into human history to resurrect the Son. And it had to have happened in order for the disciples ever to have come to believe in such an unprecedented event, one for which, as we have seen, they had no grounding in Hebrew religious expectations. To underestimate the fact of the resurrection is slowly but surely to water down what the New Testament proclaims, that Christ truly died, was buried, and rose again. To deny the original meaning of the words, He is risen, or He has been raised, is also to eradicate the possibility of Christ's radical transformation of all reality within Himself. To interpret the resurrection as a spiritual going home to God by Jesus is to nullify the very reality of Christ's resurrection from an earthly place within historical time. And likewise, to reduce the resurrection to a merely human event, something that happened to the disciples, rather than extol it as a divine event, something that happened to Jesus, is to label the New Testament witnesses and the evangelists as either psychologically gullible, emotionally unbalanced, spiritually duped, or blatant liars. In setting forth such alternative scenarios, the existential reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is simply equated with a new feeling about human freedom or a new insight into the value of life on earth or even a new self-consciousness. But is that all resurrection means? He is risen was not written as a symbolic, metaphorical, or spiritual statement of how the disciples gradually came to feel after they got over the shock and shame of Jesus' death. It was not some sort of wishful thinking or total denial of his radical and glorious transformation following a brutal death. It was a resounding testimony to the truth of what the disciples knew for themselves had happened on the third day after Jesus was buried. He rose. The various forms of reductionism distort the evident intention of the evangelists to bear witness to Christ crucified and resurrected. As philosopher Stephen Davis wrote, quote, 
these writers portrayed the resurrection of Jesus as a surprising act of divine grace that actually occurred, and not just as a mysterious or symbolic or mythological way of revealing some sort of message. And theologian and scripture scholar Gerald O'Collins commented, quote, When Paul quotes an early Christian formulation about Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, the ordinary conventions covering the use of language indicate that this confession primarily concerned Jesus and offered some factual information about what happened to Jesus himself after his death. A new event, distinct from and subsequent to the crucifixion, brought Jesus from the condition of death to that of a new and lasting life. To allege that the true primary referent in this proposition, the Father raised Jesus from the dead, was not Jesus but his disciples, is to open up an extraordinary gap between what Paul and other New Testament witnesses wrote and what they meant. End quote. Paul vehemently defended Christ's bodily resurrection when he wrote to the skeptical Corinthians who doubted the resurrection of the body, quote, If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation has been in vain and your faith has been in vain. It could not be clearer than that. Of course, the disciples experienced a radical change of heart and a deepened consciousness that they expressed in their new communal faith. There is no doubt that the resurrection had a profound, transformative, psychological and spiritual effect on the disciples, even as it continues to affect all those who believe in every age. But these effects could only have occurred as a result of something that had actually happened. As one scholar commented, quote, unless Jesus is bodily risen, that is, unless he is alive in the full integrity of his humanity symbolized in his body, he is not present either as the presence of humanity in God or as God's divinely human presence in us. So to give that event a more easily acceptable interpretation for postmodern readers is to rob the original profession of faith even of its original meaning. Biblical scholar Raymond Brown speaks for many, quote, If a critical modern investigation shows that as far back as we can trace the New Testament evidence, resurrection from the dead was an intrinsic part of Jesus' victory over death, 
than the observation that modern man does not find bodily resurrection appealing or meaningful cannot be determinative. Nor can we allow Christian theology to be shaped by contemporary distrust of the miraculous. End quote. We must also remember that the disciples were willing to suffer and die for their conviction that Jesus was truly risen and bodily alive. Not one of the original witnesses to the resurrection was ever known to have recanted. If the original disciples had not fully believed that they had seen with their own eyes the resurrected Jesus, scholars say their firm commitment to the Christian faith after the death of their leader is simply not easily explained. In fact, it was only because of the persistent belief that Jesus was the Son of God who died and was resurrected from the dead that Christianity arose in the first century, that it survived hundreds of years of persecution, and that it spread throughout the world. It falls to skeptics to prove an alternative theory that would explain this 2,000-year-old phenomenon. Contrary to revisionists or reductionists or purely spiritual reinterpretations of the resurrection, the earliest creedal formulas are luminously clear about what the disciples and what the first Christians believed had happened to Jesus. In 1 Corinthians, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. And in Romans, for to this end Christ died and lived again, so that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. And in Luke, the Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon and in the Acts of the Apostles. This man, handed over to you according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of those outside the law. But God raised him up, having freed him from death, because it was impossible for him to be held in its power. And again from the Acts of the Apostles. This Jesus God raised up, and of that all of us are witnesses. The scriptural testimonies are numerous and without qualifications. Jesus was bodily and visibly alive. Furthermore, Christ's resurrection became understood not as a fresh insight into our flawed human nature, but as a total transformation of that nature at its very root, from being sinful, suffering, merely mortal human beings, 
early Christians were convinced that their own lives had been radically and irrevocably altered by Christ's resurrection. They believed that they were destined to receive the same inheritance of immortality and freedom from suffering as had Jesus Christ himself. His bodily resurrection changed their whole outlook on life, death, and eternity. In 1 Peter we read, quote, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who are being protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Throughout the New Testament, the resounding cry is that he has been raised from the dead. The Lord is risen indeed. God has raised him up. This Jesus God raised up, or he was raised on the third day. These statements form the bedrock of everything else that is written about Jesus of Nazareth. They are the foundation for Christian faith that Jesus was truly the Son of God. Because he was the Son of God, he was conceived not by human means of reproduction, but by the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit. Because he was the Messiah, everything he preached was focused on fulfilling the prophecies of Scripture and building the new kingdom of God, not a temporal kingdom like that of King David but an everlasting one. Because he was divine, he could work countless miracles of healing, cast out demons, and resuscitate the dead. Because he was God, he could forgive sins. And finally, because he rose from the dead, Christ was understood as the new Adam, who overcame sin, suffering, and death in the name of all humanity. And that is why the fact of his bodily resurrection matters so much. As one theologian wrote, quote, In a profound sense, Christianity without the resurrection is not simply Christianity without its final chapter, It is not Christianity at all. Next week, we'll examine different types of objections to the resurrection appearances. And these are brought forth by modern and postmodern psychologists who considered the resurrection appearances to have been merely altered states of consciousness. It is crucial that we understand the arguments and the flaws in these various theories so that when the bedrock foundation of resurrection belief is challenged, 
we are able to answer objections with clarity and personal conviction. I hope you will register for notifications of these ongoing podcasts and tell your friends about them too. So until next week, I wish you all the blessings of divine life, love, and light.